This is a call to worship of the people of Israel that has been used for thousands of years. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song and play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, or if I may, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear, fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Yahweh, be upon us even as we hope in you. What an amazing psalm. You can go ahead and take your seats. Let me pause and just ask Yahweh for help this morning as, um, as we gather as his people, as his people have gathered for thousands of years to worship him together as a family. Father, we, we come before you right now and ask in this time before your word, um, before what you have declared to be true, we ask that you would soften and humble our hearts, that we would be receptive to what you have to say to your church. Father, I pray that you would grant us hearts that worship you in spirit and in truth. I, I pray, pray for um, self-awareness to know when we're playing at worship and not really worshiping. Father, I pray that you above all would be lifted up and magnified and unveiled before our very eyes through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would move in our hearts, stir in our affections to love you and to rejoice in you and to adore you and to prize you above all other things, including wife and husband, children and family. That you would be our treasure, that you would be our one reward. That we would know that to know your steadfast love is better than life itself. And that those outside this church would see by our affection for you that we really believe in what we believe. That we believe what we say we believe. Father, I pray for your help in my delivery of, of this message to your people. And I pray for your help for those who have gathered here to engage with you and to hear what you have to say to them personally. 
So we just lay ourselves out before you, Lord, and ask that you would act in the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So if, if you were here, just to kind of give you a, a sense of where we were last week and where we're going to be the next, well, three weeks, counting today, four weeks. Um, it's not your typical um, series of messages. Um, the, the, the elders um, and myself have this uh, vision, um, and it's a vision we believe is not only consistent with Scripture, but it's revealed in Scripture, and um, of what the church should be and what we should pray for. And in many respects, um, that vision, which has four parts, has, 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 um, has already been at work in our church, but we felt the need to crystallize exactly what is it we're trying to do and then to communicate it with you as a Parkway family so we're like all on the same page or in the same direction and understand uh, what, we're, um, what we're pursuing. And last week, I kind of gave an overview, um, and, it, and it, it focused on four things. It focused on worship, education, community life, and outreach, those four things. And, um, and this, this morning, we're going to um, focus in on just one, and that is worship and next week education and so forth, just so we kind of drill down deep and understand what we mean by these things. And hopefully, um, as, as these things are explained, that we will not only grab onto them, but believe them, and we will pray them, and God will continue to forge in us a, a church that um, is, is vibrant. Worship. Um, how many of you have been in the church for over 30 years? Can you just, just let me know. I just want to know how, how many under five years. I can tell you from my own personal experience, because I, I don't remember when I was first in the church because I was, uh, I was an infant. But I can tell you that over the years, the whole culture of worship has, has developed in some massive ways and changed in terms of technology and in just in terms of the importance in terms of the life of the church. For example, the first thing I remember about worship, and by worship I'm thinking mostly of the musical aspects of worship, I believe preaching is worship too, but the musical aspects of worship. I remember a guy standing up behind a podium and waving his arms. Remember that? You know? And he was never, he wasn't paid, not in my church. He was a volunteer. He just had to figure out one, two, three, one, two, you know, that kind of stuff. Or one, two, three, four. He, he, like we were the choir and he would direct us. And we'd have our hymnals and he'd tell us to open to hymn number 13. And that's what we'd do. And we'd sing. And typically it'd be, Everybody sings on the first verse, the women on the second verse, men on the third verse, and everybody gets to sing on the fourth verse. And that was pretty, that was pretty universal because I went to other churches. They did the same thing. Well, then we transitioned from hymnals to overhead projectors. Do you remember those? The, is it where you put the transparency on the glass and someone would sit up on stage and they'd put the transparency up there and sometimes it'd be upside down or sideways and you're out in the audience. Like, just, I didn't ever saw the hymn look that way before. And then we transition from that to slide projectors, where you actually get the little slides, like you used to slide shows in the little carousel. When I first got here, that's what we were using. And um, you actually had to pre-order those because you, you couldn't make them. So if you wanted a new song, you had to order it, you had to wait, and then come in. I remember sometimes the slides would come in sideways. And it, now, of course, we have you know video projection. This, this is HD, awesome, widescreen. Like, it's just things have changed, both in terms of the one guy standing up front directing us like a choir, hymnals and, and overhead projectors and slide projectors and HD digital projectors and, and, um, and even the, the music and, I mean, there's the lights and in some places there's smoke machines, right? I mean, have you been to a conference? I've been to a worship conference and there's like smoke machines. Like, wow, this is really something. It's like a, like a I, I want to say a Rush concert, but I don't want to actually admit that I went to a Rush concert. 
but that was kind of what it was like, and you just realize that things have changed over the years, and the importance of experience in worship has mushroomed. You look at the industry, um, worship conferences, books on worship, how many people buy a lot of worship music, and it's astounding. Like, there's been a massive catapulting of worship in terms of musical experiential worship into the center stage of the life of the church. That's, that's just a fact. And that's not a bad thing. As I said last week, like we were made for worship, right? And it's cool that people want to experience God. But it, 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 it raises a really important question, and that is what is worship? Like when, when you strip away what the old church didn't have, they didn't have lights, they didn't have smoke machines, they didn't have TVs, they didn't have electrical amplification, they didn't have projectors. When you strip it away, what, what, what really is worship? And a massively important question. Last week we said that part of what we pray God does in our church in terms of um, vision is that we would be a, a church that worships in Christ-centered, biblically-informed ways. And that's, that's, we filled that out a little bit, but not, it didn't go very deep. What does that mean, though? What does it really mean to worship in Christ-centered, biblically-informed ways? To answer that question, I'm going to do three things. I want to provide a definition of worship. Two, I want to expand on that definition through Psalm 33, which we just read. And third, I want to issue all of us, including myself, a challenge in terms of corporate worship, how we enter into it. So those three things. Definition, an expansion, and then a challenge. Now, different people have defined worship in different ways, but most of the definitions that I have seen or read pretty much say the same things, just using slightly different words. But almost every one of them have two things that are represented in this definition. That worship is the God-exalting, and you can put a different ING word in there. It just has to do with something that's honoring or magnifying or uplifting or glorifying or exalt. That doesn't mix much of who God really is. That is, worship is the God-exalting response of our whole being. Not just your lips, not just your emotions, but your whole being, including your life and your actions and your will. The whole being to everything God is and has done for us in Christ. That is a distinctively Christian um, definition of worship because it has Christ at the center. That is, worship, again, is a God-exalting response of our whole being to everything God is and has done for us in Christ. Now, as I said, there's two parts to this. The last part of the definition has to do with the cause of worship, and the first part of the definition has to do with the response of worship. If you will, there is a cause, and there is an effect. The cause of worship is everything that God is for us in Christ, everything he has done. That's the cause of worship. It's the source of worship. Worship itself is a response to that cause. That is who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Or to put it differently, um, the two essential parts of worship that are needed, divine revelation, that is God being unveiled, us um, seeing, whether it's in the lyric of music, and it shouldn't be just in the lyric of music, but in the, in, the, in the message of the preacher, in the prayers of the prayers. Is there 
is divine revelation. There is a declaration of who God is, what he's done, um, his grace, his power, and all of his, his, his amazing attributes. That's revelation. Without revelation, there is no worship. Without a display of the greatness of God, there's nothing to respond to. Get that? That's, that's the cause. At the same time, there must be a human response for it to be worship. And worship itself, um, in the scripture, in like Psalm 95, 96, is a verb. It's something we do. Um, and takes many different expressions and forms. It's, but it's something we do. It's a response of our entire being to something that has been laid out before us that we can't help respond to. But it's the cause. The revelation is the, reco- is the cause. Or, or did you, do you remember back when, and they still, I guess, have episodes of Let's Make a Deal, right? I've never seen the modern episodes. I've just seen, remember the old ones with Monty Hall, remember? And there's like door number one, door number two, and door number three, and the contestant's on there. And um, the contestant would choose a door, and it's like, show them what's behind door number one, Johnny, whatever his name was. And sometimes what was behind door number one was less than desirable, toaster, you know, whatever, a ballpoint pen. But then every once in a while, a contestant would say, almost behind number three, door number three, and, and that, that, that door would come up, and there would be like this nice, beautiful, shiny car. And the contestant would go wild, you know, just jumping up. I got the car. I got the car. And everybody in the, in the, it's not the congregation, but everybody in the studio audience is just screaming, like, I got the car. Unveiling of revelation, response. We automatically and spontaneously respond to things that are desirable, desirable and worthy and attractive. And we praise our kids when they get A's. We praise our sons or daughters when they get a grand slam. We, we praise things that is, elicits within us a joyful response um, spontaneously. And that's, that's the two parts of, of worship. Revelation, there has to be a revelation of who God is. And then there has to be a response of the heart. Which is why um, we want, as a church... We want there to be revelation, not just, and by, again, by revelation, we're talking about an unveiling of who God is, a declaration of who God is, who he is in his character and what he's done for us in Christ. Why we want revelation, not just in the message, but also in the music. But then a response, too. So let me give you two songs, and you tell me, revelation or response? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O oh, my soul. Response. Yeah, it's a response. I love you, Lord. And the Psalms are full of those kinds of things. They declare that you love the Lord, the kind of thing. You know, that's a response song. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son and make a wretch like me his treasure. Response or revelation? Right, because it's saying, man, God's love is so vast. And how is it vast? And it fills in the content. This is the revelatory part. It is so vast that God basically sacrificed his own son to make a wretch like me a treasure. Like, that is revelatory. You put those two songs together, powerful, right? 
Sing one, then the other's like, why should I say I love you, Lord? Because, man, how vast God's love is for me that he should make a wretch like me as treasure at the expense of the life of his son. You see the importance of Revelation? In every corporate gathering where Christians gather, if the worship is going to be vibrant, must have truth in it. A truth that is God-centered, God-glorifying, God-revealing, God-unveiling. That has to be there. And then our hearts to respond. And if our hearts aren't responding, but the revelation's there, something is wrong with us. Okay? But those are the two parts. And those two parts, revelation response, I just want us to lock this in our minds. As a, as a community of faith, to know from ancient times, these were two vital, essential aspects of worship. You can change the lights, you can change the seating, you can change the walls, you can change the architecture. But these things remain eternal in worship. They've always been. Psalm 33. Let me just break those two apart, revelation and response, as laid out in Psalm 33. In the first three verses of Psalm 33 that we, that we read is a call for a response, for us to do something. But then beginning in verse 4, he lays out, if you will, an unveiling of who God is so that we actually have something to respond to. The, most of the entire psalm is given to the revelation of who God is along three lines. Um, it, it reveals God as creator or Yahweh as creator, Yahweh as ruler, and Yahweh as savior and or deliverer. So there's these three verses of calling for response. And then beginning in verse 4, we see that little but important word, for. Here's why. Here's the reason. Here's the cause of worship. For the word of Yahweh is upright. And the word here that he's thinking of is his creative word. Because he goes on to talk about his creation of, of, of the heavens. He says, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of the steadfast love of, of Yahweh. That is when God created it, everything had a sense of his love and his perfection and his beauty. And then he goes on to, to specify, verse 6, by the word of, the, of Yahweh, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep into storehouses. And then there's this call, once again, to worship. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. All this really has to do with God's creative power. And one of the reasons, or one of the um, central causes of God's people worshiping throughout the generations has been the reality that Yahweh, our God, is the creator of all things. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Or all of the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but Yahweh, he made the heavens. That is a statement that if we could even begin to wrap our little tiny little minds around, would create a sense of trembling and awe the likes of which we've never seen. I don't know if I'm going to get this quote right. I'll just paraphrase it. But one of the things that Einstein had a problem with in terms of religion was the fact that he saw a lack of awe in regards to what we believe 
about God as the creator of the entire cosmos. He said, listen, I think this is Einstein's paraphrase. It's like, listen, the, the universe I've come to know is so magnificent. And yet you guys profess to believe that he created all this, but I don't sense any awe. Right? This, um, this, this, sometimes comparisons are the best things, right? Um, kind of gives us a sense. We had this lightning storm um, come over our campground uh, last week of July, first week of August. And it, it didn't just come over our campground as in like 10 miles up. It felt like it was just right outside the tent, right? It, like it shook the whole canyon. And uh, it's just the sense of the power of just a simple lightning storm in a canyon. And I had two teenagers sleeping in a tent underneath that lightning storm. And within minutes, they were in tears and trembling because of the power of thunder. And just stop and wait a second. Okay, that's the infinitesimal compared to the power of God speaking the universe into existence. And the very fact that he spoke it into existence is simply amazing. He didn't have to use hands. He didn't have to use feet. He didn't have to use means. He simply said, and it came into being. And that's a reason for us to worship. You know, all the ancient religions had their gods. They had their Zeus and Apollo and Marduk, and they had their Ashra, and they had their Baals, all of these gods that had their own little specialties. And, and the, the, the Jewish people said, no, Yahweh made it all, every bit of it. Therefore, he, he stands far supreme, and that was what caused them to worship and to remind themselves. That's what corporate worship is, a reminder of everything that God is, right? Well, he also goes on to, to um, talk about God as, as ruler. Another reason for our hearts to, to explode in, in, in worship. He says, Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The, the reason why is because the will of Yahweh stands over all other wills, over all other councils, over all other governments. His stands supreme. But the counsel of the Lord, he goes on to say, stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And then he goes on to talk about him being enthroned and looking down on the, on the inhabitants of the earth and seeing everything. That is a picture of God as supreme king, that is his ruler. And that, too, brought a tremendous sense of worship and should continue to bring or rise a sense of worship and joy and confidence in our hearts. I mean, you look at the global scene right now. And to recognize that Christians and for them Jewish people believed that there was a throne that was above the throne of Egypt. That there was a throne that was above the, th the throne of Babylon. That there was a throne above the throne of Greece. That there was a throne above the throne of Rome. There is a throne above the throne of Washington, D.C. And that's the one we worship. And he rules and frustrates national plans. That's, and, and just simply singing songs like that and remembering who he is like that should cause our hearts to, to, to praise him and to find rest in him and peace in him because he rules. That's how revelation, how important revelation is to worship. It reminds us of who he is so our hearts can worship or rest, you know, as his people. Then the last thing, he concludes with God's grace as Savior um, and Redeemer. He reminds God's people not to put their trust in earthly things. The king is not saved. Notice, notice how many salvation words are in this part. Saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered. There's another word, by his great strength, the war horse. Or in contemporary warfare 
language. You could say a tank or a Humvee or a Apache helicopter or a C-130, whatever, is a false hope for salvation. For by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, now here's the reversal, the eye, the attentive, caring eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, those who stand in awe of him, those who uh, uh, tremble before him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. It's amazing that fear and hope and steadfast love are side by side, that there's a, an awe that's full of hope in God's great love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Deliver their soul from death, another salvation. He's just reminding us that, yes, Yahweh created all things, and yes, he rules over all things, but consider his heart. Like It's the heart of steadfast love that he saves, he delivers. He delivers his people from death, and he, he preserves them in times of famine. That's talking about grace, salvation, redemption. So here you have these three massive, and I would say these are three of the biggest truths in all of the Bible. God is creator, and God is ruler, and God is savior. And these are the kinds of revelatory truths that we are to sing about and preach about and pray about and worship as a result of. But let me take it one step further. Because what is generalized in the Old Testament about Yahweh being creator, ruler, and savior is both focused and fulfilled in the New Testament in one place, and that is in the person of Jesus. So when the Christian people gather together, they recognize that Jesus is Yahweh's instrument of creation, that Jesus is Yahweh's instrument of his rule, that Jesus is Yahweh's instrument of salvation. Come into the New Testament, you sense that they, they, they're, they're grappling with who Jesus really is. So Paul would say, Colossians chapter 1, he said, For by him, speaking of Jesus, by him all things were made. Things in heaven and things on earth, that's pretty much everything. You know, things visible and invisible. Through him and, and for him they were made. In other words, he was the creative force of Yahweh. That he is, he is the, the, the agent of God's rule. He is a he is. God's rule come to fulfillment in human history, which is why Jesus could say after he died and rose again, he could say, listen, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's everywhere. All authority has been given to me to rule. And I will rule until I put all things under my feet, and then the end will come. Which means that's where he is right now. We understand the one on the throne of Yahweh is Jesus. And then Jesus, of course, is God's means of saving not just our human souls, but of saving the entire creation. For by his blood he reconciled all things, Colossians 1, things in heaven and things on earth. So it comes into crystal view in the person of Jesus. So when we're singing about God's sovereignty, it's the sovereignty of Christ. When we're singing about God's salvation, we're singing about the sovereignty or the salvation of Christ, and we're singing about the you know, the creative power and wisdom of God. We're singing about the power and wisdom of, of Christ. That's what we're, we're singing about. All in this world. That's why we worship him. But just one last thing about this. Um, I'm going to go back to the definition when I said worship is um, God-exalting response of our entire being. 
to everything that God is and has done for us. The, the thing that, that, that uh, should blow God's people away and have for centuries and thousands of years is God is all of these things in and of himself, but he is all of those things for us, right? He uses his creative power for the sake of his people, that he rules for the sake of his people so that we can claim that all things do work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose and so forth because Jesus is the one who's ruling for us. He's the one who gave his life for us. So all of the greatness of all that God is has miraculously and graciously and lovingly come for us. And we have to almost stop and go, who, who am I, oh Lord, that you should love me with this kind of everlasting love, a creative love, a ruling love, sovereign love, and a saving love? So there you have the, the revelation. See right there in the song? All that revelation that our hearts should say, yes! Oh, thank you, Lord, for that. I needed that. That's, that's the revelation. But by far, most of the psalm, or I should say the smallest part of the psalm, is given to the response. But it does call for a response. And I just went through and I just kind of um, selected out all of the response words. There's shouting for joy. We have a couple people in our congregation who love to shout once in a while. If God should so move you by a, by a work of grace in your life, you just want to say, and, and this is my favorite thing, it, uh, I think it was first service, not second service, on, on Easter, when we sang the fourth verse to Man of Sorrows, and it gets to the part about the stone being rolled away, and there, was, there were people in the congregation because tell they just wanted to clap. They're just like, they wanted to say something. It's like, yes, you know, I want you to know, that's okay, Right? It's right here. It's verse 1. And this is, a, this is a corporate worship song. Shout for joy. Thank you. <laughs> Praising and giving thanks as gratitude and making melody and singing and playing skillfully on instruments. And by the way, if you play an instrument or you know how to do sound or you know things about computers and you would like to be part of the worship ministry, then you need to see David Kurtz right after this service, right here, and say, I want to help out. End of commercial. You need to be involved. We, we need people to want to help God's people lift up the name. There you go. Play skillfully on instruments and guitars and so forth. Thank you. Uh, fearing, standing in awe, hoping, waiting for him. Waiting is a form of worship. It's like, I trust you enough with this lapse of time that... I trust you. That's a form of worship. Rejoicing and trusting. And I could add to this praying and lamenting and complaining even. There are complaints in the Psalms that say, Lord, how long? How lo long will you hide your face from me? How long? It seems like you've forgotten me. That is lifted up as a complaint of faith. All of this is legitimate worship, and we come, gather together as a community of believers to be reminded and reflect on the fact of who God is and to be to kind of brought up out of the clouds of this, this dusty earth and go, yes, and to remember who we are because of him and say, yes, that's what worship's about. Let the, let the veil go up and let us be reminded of him 
reminded of who we are. So that's our response. That ought to be our response. And if it's not our response, then we really have to kind of say, take a self-check and say, do I really believe this stuff? And that really is the challenge. That's the final thing, the challenge. There are a lot of reasons why people may not want to shout for joy um, or rejoice in the Lord, sing to the Lord, play an instrument to the Lord, lament to the Lord. Maybe it's because of sin, unrepentance. Maybe it's because a person doesn't really know the Lord yet, and so they haven't had their heart changed, and so they can't worship if their heart hasn't been changed. But I think perhaps one of the main reasons that, that we don't really erupt with praise to God is because we lack faith in what we're singing about. We lack faith in what we're hearing about. We, we kind of know it up here, but, but haven't really believed it yet here. And I think part of the reason for that is because we often come to corporate worship, and corporate worship is mandated by the Bible. We gather together as a family, and we lift up the name of Jesus. But one of the reasons that we often don't have that kind of worship response to the Lord from the heart that includes our entire being is because we often come in here proud. That is, we don't sense our massive need. Passive. That is kind of like... All right, God, make me worship. I mean, seriously, um, not that husband and wife relationships are like this, but can you imagine? All right, sweetheart, make me happy. She'd say, get off the couch and make yourself happy. That's what she'd say. <laughs> but that is, there's kind of passivity, expecting, well, God, do something, wow me, um, and a lack of mental engagement. There's a really... Um, a lot of writers have talked about the fact that we live in a culture that is big on experience and lacking in the mind. You remember that book called The Closing of the American Mind by Alan Bloom? Um, that people don't want to engage in thinking. And this isn't just for people who are intellectual. It's like God made us with minds that we're supposed to take truth in with. And if we're not engaged in our thinking and minds, and, and think about it, uh, the gospel, this, 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 is, this appeals to our minds. It, it really does. These are words and phrases and verbs and, and adjectives and adverbs and there's there's paragraphs and there's poetry and there's symbols and, and all of this appeals at first to the mind but it's supposed to then go down into the heart so we can respond but you can't bypass the mind and a lot of people want to worship without engaging the mind you want the experience but don't want to come through the truth that's kind of a problem when Jesus said I want us just to worship him in spirit and truth let the gospel be the cause of your worship so here's a challenge for everyone here, including myself. To nurture, this is in our approach to corporate worship, to nurture a prayerful, mentally engaged, expectant faith in worship. That was we come believing. We come prayerful as, as the Psalms teach us over and over again. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord that I may see you high and lifted up. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord, that I may walk in your truth. You unite my heart to fear you. Those were David's prayers. 
is praying constantly. The reason we pray when we come to worship is we can't worship the Lord without grace. We can't worship without a strength. So prayer is an integral part of our worship. If you find your heart dead, you say, Lord, my heart is dead. Help me. That's prayer. Prayerful. Mentally engaged. Now, you're actually thinking about the words you're singing about and asking yourself the important question. Do I really believe this? And if I believe this, why is my heart not exploding with joy? And expecting that, you know, God is here. His presence is here. His Holy Spirit is here. And if we seek him, trusting the promise that we will find him if we seek him, the only seeking we do is seeking by faith, then he will fulfill that promise and he says, you will find me. That's active. To nurture a prayerful, mentally engaged, expectant faith in worship. So let me tell you maybe what this might look like. Let's just say I, I'll use my, let's just say I came in to worship this morning anxious and fearful about something. Maybe you came in anxious and fearful about something. Financial, some relationship, some unknown, and you're just like, man, I'm so worried about this. And you can't get your mind off of it. Then it might be in that state, you'll just come in, sit down again. All right. Meanwhile, you're anxious and you're fearful, and you haven't prayerfully engaged in the truth of what's being sung and said, not expecting that God's going to meet you. That would be the way not to do worship. But if you come with anxieties and fears and, and things that are distracting you because maybe they cause you pain, and there's a lot of that here. There's a lot of that in here. And we come prayerful. All right, Lord, you know my fears. You know my anxieties. You know sometimes I'm not trusting you. Will you please reach down your hand of grace in this worship service? When I'm gathered together with my brothers and sisters, will you help me to engage my head and my heart in your truth? Because I'm expecting you to meet with me in a way that will give me confidence and faith again. And then you come and you start singing songs like, he reigns. And you mentally engage going, he does reign. That's right. I forgot about that truth. He reigns over my finances, and he reigns over the soul of my child, and he reigns over this jacked-up political situation. <sighs> Thank you. See? Engaging in the truth and then asking yourself, do I believe it? And then saying, I do. I believe your truth. Help me in my unbelief. It's when that begins to happen. We come with that prayerful, mentally engaged, expectant faith. Even if it's a faith of a mustard seed gift, we will find a sense of fearless worship start to rise uh, in our church. And I, I hope that's just again the challenge for all of us. That when we come here, don't come unprepared. Allow yourself to be prayerful in, in what is written right behind me. All right? And I'll close with this. There's the person who's probably taught me more about worship um, in my life up to this point. More than any worship leader more than Chris Tomlin, love Chris Tomlin's songs, love watching videos of Chris Tomlin, not in a weird way, just like really like watching him, you know, he's an amazing worship leader. Uh, Matt Redmond, love his music. Um, Stuart Townend, love his music. But there's one person who taught me more than anything else about worship, and uh, wasn't a worship leader. He was actually a colonel in the Air Force. His name was Phil. 
And uh, I just remember as a boy, he would come into worship. And uh, he was a tall guy from West Virginia. He had a big old drawl, you know, West Virginia. And, um, and Christ had revealed himself to Phil in a way that radically transformed his whole life. And I'll tell you, that West Virginia boy was my father's age. He just laid him to rest last year. Um, that boy would sing um, in a way that would throw the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir off key. In a word, he was horrible. At the time as a kid, as a horn player, you know, I was like, whoa, wow. Even when I was a little kid, I was like, seriously, and why do you sing so loud right behind me? I can't concentrate. And um, I remember I asked my mom, it's like, well, why does he sing like he's a complete half tone off? Sometimes he wouldn't even be a half tone. It's like a, a augmented seventh off. I don't know. It's just way off. And I, 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 why does he do that? And her response was, he ain't singing for you. <laughs> He's here because Christ called him and saved him, and he sings like that for him. And you know what that, over the years, when I think about worship, that's what I think about. And you talk about a respectable person, he was a colonel in the Air Force, and yet he didn't care. That's something to have a lack of self-consciousness and say, you know what? In light of all that Christ is for me, let's go. And give yourself, not just vocally, I'm not talking about, just give your life in worship to Christ because of all he's done. That, I believe, is an accurate picture of a heart that has been ravished by the glory of Christ that simply wants to worship him with one's whole being. And I pray that for us. Amen. God, please, we ask, um, unveil our eyes and, and create a sense of expectation for us that we know you're here and believe you're here and we believe your truths. May we worship you, Lord, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. For it's only as we truly taste and know that you are good that others around us will know that we actually believe what we say we believe. So make us above all things, Lord, worshipers of Christ in truth in his name. Amen.